and for the reading of God's word, our respect for God. Isaiah chapter 7, I'll read the first nine verses here. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear and Jessup, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim shall be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we need you right now, your help to help us to understand your word, how it relates to us, and how we're to live in accordance with what you have told us. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would help me to speak clearly. Uh, help our understanding and give us soft hearts that we will receive what you have to say. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So yesterday morning on the way in to the office <clears throat> to work on the message, I uh, decided to stop for breakfast at Burger King. Uh, I had a taste for some pancakes, and Burger King had a nice big sign outside that said, three pancakes, although smaller, for 89 cents. And I was thinking to myself, how could you pass up a deal like that? Three pancakes, 89 cents. Well, for some reason, I decided instead of going through the drive-thru that I would actually go inside. Uh, and it was just, you know, a lonely morning inside. I walked in. There was just one gentleman sitting off uh, having his morning coffee. I'm not sure what he was doing. Uh, and then I walked to the counter, and there was no one else in line. I made my way to the front. And when I went to the counter, there was a very nice lady who was standing at the counter who to welcome me to Burger King and uh, she began to take my order. And I did notice immediately right away uh, that she was battling with some congestion. <clears throat> and while she was beginning, getting ready to start to take my order, a, uh, a co-worker came out of the back from behind the wall and stopped and just kind of interrupted our conversation and, and said to his co-worker, hey, uh, do you mind if I go get you something to help you with that? I know you've not been feeling well this morning. I want to see, do you want me to go and buy you some Mucinex? Uh, and, and she was like, no, I'm like trying to take an order right now. Uh, and stuff like that. And then he looked at me and apologized for interrupting and explained. He said, he said to me, he said, listen, I just hate it when I see someone who's ill and then for me to not do anything about it to help them. That I, I just love when I see somebody who's ill to try to help them if they're ill. 
Uh, she then went on to explain she didn't think the mucinex would help because she thought she was actually having a mild a food uh, allergy reaction to uh, some tomatoes that one of the coworkers had touched and then had touched her. So she didn't think that was going to help. And then as I saw this situation unfold, uh, it reminded me that, you know, there are just times in life that we need help from other people. That's just one of the realities that we face in life. Uh, I was reminded of this last week, not this week, but the week before. Uh, during the middle of the week, Tuesday night, I fell ill and I found myself thrown on the couch all day Wednesday, just mostly sleeping throughout the day. And, and it was because my family was there that I was able to eat and get tissues and stuff like that because they helped me make it through my illness. And that's just one of the ways that we're reminded that we need help in life. Uh, sometimes that looks like it, whether we admit it or not, that we need help. It comes in various forms. Sometimes it looks like, hey, you know, you're in class or you're pursuing a degree and there's a subject that you're working on and you don't fully understand that subject. And so they have tutoring. And so you go to the tutoring hour or you should go to the tutoring hour and uh, you get there and then there's someone who actually understands that subject matter very well. And they come alongside you and they help you. Or sometimes it's just in general life, either in business, that you want to become better at something in business, and, and that's a form of mentoring, or just life mentoring, where somebody comes alongside you and helps you in the decision-making process, and you just realize, I need help. Sometimes it looks like uh, one of the articles I read this week started off, and in the beginning of his article, in one of the footnotes, he talked about just giving thanks to those who had come alongside him to help him by reading the article, giving him advice, and helping him to make the article better so that it could be published. Peers do that for you because we need help in life. So it could either be in counsel or sometimes it comes in just medical assistance. Sometimes it comes in a form of, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to pursue a new job or a new career, and, and I need someone else to vouch for me, someone to speak on my behalf to say that, hey, this person will be an asset to your company. This will be a good person to have work for you. They're competent, they work hard, they have a good work ethic, and so you need someone else to come alongside and help you. Or sometimes it's just, hey, you know what, I need to carpool today. Hey, can you pick me up? Can you take me to work with you? And that's the way that people help. Or sometimes for, for those of us who are parents, uh, which we gladly appreciate, it looks like, help from others looks like, hey, uh, a family member, grandma, uh, a close neighbor or friend that you think of like a relative comes over to the house, they watch the kids, just so you can get a break. And you're thankful for that. At least I know I am when it happens. And you're glad because you get a chance to relax. But life, these things that are happening in life remind us that life cannot be lived in isolation. And, and God has designed life in such a way that we need assistance at various times in our life. We all need help. And there are sometimes that some situations that arise in our life or that God allows or causes to arise in our life to ultimately get at where our trust really is. Because what God wants us to learn is there is a reality that our ultimate trust has to be in him who is greater than any human being. Uh, <clears throat> this was brought back to my mind. Uh, this re recently we celebrated my son's birthday. And uh, when I had this birthday, I had a chance to just kind of think back about his birth. And I started thinking back about how he came into the world. Uh, and he had an a, a interesting circumstance that happened with him. Uh, when my wife was pregnant with him at one of our routine visits to the uh, doctor that we went to, and since you had to go to several of them over time, uh, we were going, and in uh, one of the, the ultrasounds, they let us know that there was a problem in his brain development, uh, that one of his ventricles, something was wrong with one of the ventricles. Uh, and so they began to explain to us, because I didn't know exactly what the implications of that were, so they began to say, hey, these are some negative consequences that if this doesn't change, that could come out as a result. And although I'm very thankful for medical personnel and all the knowledge that we have, 
Uh, my wife and I, in the previous pregnancy, had had a miscarriage, so we knew that things could go very, very wrong. They didn't have to turn out well. Uh, we knew that pregnancy could go in a direction that you didn't want it to go. And so for us, as Christians, we knew that although we're thankful for medical personnel and all the investment and knowledge they have, that we needed help beyond what humans could provide. And so we resorted to prayer. We prayed. Pastor Mike prayed. Church family members prayed for us. I don't have a miracle story for you. All I can simply say is that God in his great and unfathomable mercy and grace uh, allowed that when my son was born, uh, there were no negative side effects that we could see. And then in the years since then, there have been no major negative results as, as a result of what was going on in his brain. I don't know what happened. I just know that God was merciful and things have not turned out as worse as they could. And that type of situations, when those situations in life arise, they remind us that there are moments in life that, that get at the heart of where our trust really lies, that it ultimately has to be in God and not in other human beings. And we're put in those situations to, to prove whether or not what we're really trusting in is humanity and human's ability or in divine ability to save us. Now, this is not a new circumstance. Humans have been dealing with this issue of where our trust is in light of the history of Israel uh, for a long time. And I want to show you that through the case study of a man by the name of Ahaz. He was put in a similar situation, different circumstances, but the same situation we all face. It, the test looks different for each of us, but, but it's the same kind of thing that God is, is getting at. And so I'm going to use Ahaz today from Isaiah chapter 7 to point to this and to show this to you and what ultimately you should do as a result of that. Now, if you're not familiar with Ahaz, that's okay. He's an Old Testament guy, one of the kings of Israel. Uh, if, you, if you were looking for information on his life, you would find it in the Bible, not only here in Isaiah chapter 7 and some of the following chapters, but the main things that talk about his life are found in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. That's where you would find the bulk about his rule as king. Uh, and so we kind of find that, and you'd also know from archaeology that there are some, uh, some things that they found in archaeology that validate or corroborate his his existence, and the very things that the Bible says that happened during his reign. So we have some of that information as well. Well, let me recap for those who haven't read lately about Ahaz's life so you can know who he is. Let me start back a, a few hundred years before him. Uh, in the life of Israel, there was a point after the time of the judges that Israel became ruled by kings because that's what they asked for, and that was the, the structure of government. And they were one united kingdom, first ruled by Saul for a little while. In between there, there was kind of two kings while David was coming to the throne. And finally, David became the major king. Uh, he was the next major king. And then after that was his son, uh, Solomon. And because of Solomon's sin, uh, God said that he was going to break up the nation. But he wasn't going to do it during Solomon's time. And so when Solomon's son uh, came onto the scene, uh, some things happened and there was some unrest. And what, what had been a nation that was kind of this, this union of 12 tribes, Ten of those tribes seceded from the Union and formed their own nation to the north, and they kept the name Israel. And there was two tribes to the south, and then they formed a nation, and that name became Judah. In the north, they were no longer under the, under the Davidic kings. They were now under new leadership. But the, the tribes to the south, whose capital was Jerusalem, remained under, under the heirs of David. That is, the sons of David and the line of kings remained under David. And this is who God had promised would continue to rule. And so Ahaz appears on the pages of history some about 200 years after the kingdom had split. And so a lot of history has happened, and he shows up on the scene. Uh, he starts to rule while he's a young man. He's 20 years old, so he's a, he's a young guy. 
when he starts his, his reign as king. He shares some of the rule at the beginning with his father that overlaps, and then he rules for, by himself for a bit. And then at the end of his reign, he rules with his son, who becomes Hezekiah. But, but he does something different than his father and his grandfather had done. <clears throat> Although they didn't necessarily do everything right, they had this redeeming factor to them, the two, the, his father and grandfather. They both worshiped the God of Israel. Uh, and so they were kind of God worshipers. They followed God. Well, uh, Ahaz decided that he was going to break with that pattern. He, he kind of believed in the culture of the day. He saw what was going on in culture. He was attracted to that. He saw what other nations were doing, the gods that they were worshiping. And he was like, you know, I, I just want to do what everybody else is doing. So he left the God of Israel and started to worship the Baals and, uh, and all these other types of things. And then he said, you know, and since I'm the king and I think that's a good thing to do, I'm, I'm going to make it so that everybody else in the nation can do the same thing. And so then he kind of led the nation away from God into idolatry. And that was kind of what he was known for. And this is the way that he was living his life. And so God, in light of that, because of God's relationship and promise to David, began to work in Ahaz's life to turn him from this decision-making process. And the way that he did that was that he allowed two enemies Israel and Syria, who were nations to the north, to form a coalition and to begin to attack him. And that's what we find in the text. It is a period of war. We do find out how the battle turns out from how Kings and Chronicles describe it. During this battle that takes place, uh, God allows, during this process of war, for Judah to suffer heavy losses militarily. They lose a ton of soldiers. And not only do they lose a lot of soldiers, a lot of the citizens who are not combatants are packed off in captivity. And so there is great loss. And what we find in the battle in the text is at this point where the two uh, other nations are approaching the, approaching the capital city because they have something in mind. What they want to do is they want to overthrow the Davidic dynasty, throw the line of David's sons off of the throne. They want to put a puppet king in and control him. And there's a reason why they're doing all of this. There's a political reason and then there's a theological reason. Both things are existing at the same time, just like in our lives. There are, there are human reasons why things are happening, but there's also a reason why God is allowing or causing this thing to happen. If we're looking at it from a political perspective, we just have to simply look at what's going on in the culture of the day. So uh, Israel and Syria are to the north of Judah, who's in the south. And above them to the north, there is a nation rising to power called Assyria. And Assyria is not only wanting to rise to power, but because during those days people often thought of empires, they want to expand their influence and their control over land. And so Israel uh, and Syria realize that Assyria is about to start pushing into their area. And so they realize <clears throat> that they're going to be in war soon. And because they're two weaker nations, they say to themselves, hey, listen, uh, we can't fight Assyria alone. Why don't we join forces? Why don't we get together and we'll fight together against Assyria from them coming in and taking over our land. And so they form this coalition. But the problem is they go down to Judah and they try to get Judah, hey, listen, Assyria is going to be coming down our way. We're going to have to get into war. Why don't you join us? We'll all fight together and maybe we can keep Assyria out of our territory. Well, Judah says, hey, listen, we don't want any part of that. Uh, we don't want to get into that fight. That's your fight. We don't want any of that. So now uh, Israel and Syria have a problem on their hands. Uh, they may potentially have an enemy to the south, and they know they're going to be in war from the north and the east, and they don't want to fight war on those two fronts. And so what they decide to do is, let's take out the weaker opponent first. And so that's why they attack Judah 
and that's the political reason behind it. But the Chronicle goes on to tell us it's not just politics that are involved, but behind the human scene in the, in, in the invisible world, because God is king over all creation, God is intentionally allowing this, causing this to happen, because he's trying to get at Ahaz's heart as the king of the nation. Because he's in relationship with this nation, God is using these political things to get at a theological thing, which is he wants to humble Ahaz and the people of Judah so that they will turn from their idolatry and return to him and worship him as their God. Because what God is more concerned about is his, their relationship with him, and he's willing to use other governments to cause the people to suffer so that they might turn from their wickedness and return to him. And it's into these conditions while war is coming in, while his land is being conquered, as they're pressing in on his capital city, that God enters the situation to talk to Ahaz, to let him see, hey, things are bad, but I want to do something in relationship with you so that our relationship can be right. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to the king. Uh, and he says to the king, listen, I, I'm not going to let happen what your enemies want to happen. Although I'm allowing them in the land to teach you a lesson so that you'll turn from your wickedness, uh, I'm not going to allow them to accomplish all that they want to accomplish, which is to throw you off the throne because I made a promise to your father, David, and I'm not going to abandon that promise. And so King Ahaz uh, is here and God is approaching him through the prophet. But he says, if you notice at the end of verse 9, what he says to him, but this is going to be contented upon you having faith or trust or confidence in me as God, because Ahaz has no confidence in the God of Israel. That's why he's worshiping Baal and other gods, because his confidence and his trust is in another place. And so in the nine verses, we saw that God shows up to him because Ahaz is afraid. Most likely, the reason what's happening in the text is that Isaiah finds him while the king, because he realizes a siege is about to happen, he's checking the water supply. And God sends the prophet and says, I know you're afraid. Notice what the text said. Their hearts were shaken like trees in the wind. He says, I, I know you're afraid, but don't be afraid, because I'm not going to let them do what they want to do to you. And you don't need to be afraid, but you need to trust me and believe that I am able to deliver you from this situation of what's going on. But the only way that this is going to work out is if you have faith in me. And remember, he says to them, think about what your real problem is here. Your problem is not the war. It's really just two men. It's two guys who are leading two nations, and ultimately, I'm able to take care of two men. And so I can turn this whole situation around for you in just a moment. So you need to trust in me. Don't trust in yourself or your human ability to think you can get yourself out of these situations because that will ultimately have negative consequences for your nation, for the nation of Judah. And so he's presented with this decision. Will he trust God or will he trust in his own ability to get himself out of this desperate situation of warfare? Now, God knows where Ahaz's heart is. He knows that Ahaz does not trust him. He's watched Ahaz's life. He's seen him go and worship. He knows what Ahaz is into. He knows that he's bought into the culture of his day, and he knows that he's worshiping other gods, and he's not like his dad and like his grandfather. He's chosen a different way of life. And so God comes to him and offers to him a very rare opportunity so that he might engender faith in Ahaz. We pick up at verse 10. Notice what the text says here. So the prophet is speaking to him, and he says to him, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, that's the place of the grave, or where the dead go, or as high as heaven, that's where God rules from, 
And, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Excuse me. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the kings of Assyria. So God offers Ahaz a rare opportunity. He says to him, listen, I know you don't trust me. I know you have no faith in me. But to prove that what I'm saying is going to happen, that I'm not going to let these two nations accomplish what they want, destroy Judah, throw you off the throne and replace you, I'm not going to let that happen. And to prove that, I'm willing to give you a sign to confirm, a confirming sign for that to happen. So I'm going to let you pick the sign. And, it, it, and it's only limited by your imagination. You can say, hey, let the sun stand still, and I'll do that for you. All you have to do is simply ask, and I'm going to confirm it to you. So whatever your mind can come up with, I'll handle it. I'll show you to prove that I'm going to keep my word. Now, what's interesting to me is how his faithlessness plays out in this text. Notice what Ahaz says. So the prophet offers to him a rare opportunity that humans don't usually get from God. And the king says, no, thank you. I don't need that. I'm good. No, I don't need a sign from God. And then he does something that I find interesting. Notice how his faith plays out in the text. If you start reading back at verse 10, he hides behind religious garb. Uh, you know what? I remember now, yeah, something about when I learned, when I was learning about the Bible, oh, back in Deuteronomy, oh, well, we don't need to put God to the test. I don't want to test God. Now, his whole life, he's not been obeying God, following God's law, not law, God's law, and now all of a sudden he wants to obey God's law? No, this is just another sign of his faithlessness. But brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what religious garb we put on, how we throw on the show. God knows the truth about us. He knows when our hearts are genuinely trying to trust him and follow him. And he knows when it's all just an act or a show. And that's what we see in the text. God sees right through it. Even the prophet Isaiah sees through it and says to him, well, listen, since you won't give a sign, God has said, even though you haven't asked for a sign, he's going to give you a sign anyway. I like the way that the Net Bible translates it here because it brings out some of the nuances of the original text. Let me read it for you here. This is the way the Net Bible translated. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, notice in the text what, what, that we don't get in the English, but is, is in the Hebrew there, uh, is that the, the, the pronoun changes from singular to a plural you. This sign is not just for Ahaz, it is for the entire house of David. That is the line, the dynasty of David. It's, it's for David's family, not just Ahaz. And God is pointing out the meaning of this sign is that he is going to be with the family of David, and he's going to be with them in two ways. One, he's not going to allow uh, Israel and Syria to accomplish what they want and throw him off the throne. 
and throw and get rid of the Davidic line, and nor is he going to let them continue to be a threat that he's going to deal with these two nations. And just in a few years, they won't even be able to be nations anymore because they're going to be defeated. And so he says, these are two ways that God is going to be with you. And then he promises to them, he says, ultimately, the reason why that the, the throne is going to continue is because God is going to raise up another baby to sit on that throne who won't be like Ahaz. He'll be faithful. And, he will, he, and his rule will be tied up with the name of God in a way that no other leader has been tied up. Pastor Mike read the text to you, but let me remind you of it. We find that in Isaiah chapter 9, picking up from, with verse 6. And this is what the text says. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God says, I know you're worried about the line of kings being broken, that they're going to get accomplished, but, I, but I'm going to raise up a descendant that's going to be unlike any other descendant. And because of his faithfulness to me, he's going to ensure that the line of David will continue, just as I promised some 200, 200 250 years ago to your father, David, when we started this whole enterprise. And so Ahaz is faced with a choice. Will he trust the God of Israel for his salvation, or will he trust in human effort and human ability to save himself? God says if you end up trusting in human ability, that is, if you end up looking to your political alliances and what you can maneuver and do for yourself, what you think is going to save you will ultimately turn against you. The ally that you're trusting in, the one that you're hoping is going to save you, will ultimately become the enemy who will, will cause war against you. But Ahaz, as we know, know, know from history, uh, he does not choose to trust God. He says, uh, yep, uh, I can see these political alliances. I, I can see uh, other human beings who have might and power, and they have a military. And human ability is very visible to me. But you, God, are invisible. I don't see you. Uh, I haven't been worshiping you. And, you know, this war came into my land. You didn't do anything about that at, at the start. So, you know, I'm going to go with human ability over you. I'm not going to trust in divine ability. I'm going to trust in human ability. Now, we have to ask from history, did he make the right choice? Because on one level, it looks like by trusting in human ability that Ahaz made the right choice. Why do I say that? Because from one perspective, uh, there was peace during his reign. And Assyria, who he enters into the uh, trust relationship with, uh, who becomes his savior, if you will, uh, they don't attack his land. Why is that the case? Well, because he chooses to become a vassal of the nation of Assyria. That is, his nation becomes a servant to Assyria's nation. And part of that means that you have to pay tribute to the one to whom uh, is ruling over you. And so he had to take large sums of money. He adopted their worship of idols and built up idols like Assyria had and worshiped their gods. And this was all part of the deal. If you want to have Assyria's protection, you've got to worship like Assyria and you've got to pay Assyria. And so he gave up his freedom, gave up the sovereignty of his nation so that he could be protected because he believed more that Assyria could protect him better than God could protect him. And from one sense, it looks like things may have turned out okay. That is until we consider that the things turned out the way they did because of God's promises, not because of Ahaz's 
political maneuvering. God is the one who told him that they would not succeed and that ultimately that, that, that the two nations would be dealt with and that ultimately that Assyria would come against uh, Judah in later time. And it's exactly what happened. Things turn out in the timeline that God lays out. And God uses children and their births and their aging to be clocks for Ahaz to know that God is the one who's in control of human affairs. And things play out just as God says they do right when God says they're going to happen. And what did God say? That the ally you've trusted in would ultimately become your enemy. And in Hezekiah, his son's reign, exactly what God said would happen, happens. Assyria turns against Judah, and there is war. So what Ahaz missed was that the reason things turned out well was because God was the one running events and in mercy protecting him because of his promise to his father David, not because of Ahaz's political maneuvering. And brothers and sisters, this is to teach us a lesson. There are times when we are placed in situations where we have to choose between where our confidence will lie. And we can say, hey, listen, I'm going to choose not to opt for God. I'm going to choose to opt for human affairs, and I'm going to trust in human abilities. And it may look like that things turn out for a while, okay? But ultimately, if you keep living life and you keep allowing life to unfold, exactly what God said will happen in just the way he said it would happen. And thus, the text encourages us, put your trust in God rather than in human ability. Why do I say that? Because we have to remember who we're talking about when we mention God. When we think about that concept, that, that title, God, who is it that we're talking about? We're just not talking about any God. We're talking about the God of the Bible. You meet him on the very first page of the Bible. He's the first person you're introduced to. It's just him and there's no one else. He shows up and he creates all things that exist. Colossians 1 tells us not just the visible things, but also the invisible things, the realm of all other beings that exist that we cannot see. God is responsible for their life as well. He's the one who ultimately exists in eternity. His power knows no bounds. It is limitless. The human mind cannot even comprehend the power that God possesses. It is beyond what the mind could imagine. His wisdom and his knowledge, when you look at a creation, as the psalmist says, is unsearchable. God's wisdom, his creativity, his ability to think, and for him to do all of this without counsel. No one instructed God or laid out a plan for him and said, God, this is how you ought to make the universe. No one was his advisor or counselor. God just came up with everything all by himself. And not only that, but this God is a good God. How do we know that? Because God could have created nothing, and yet he did decide to create and made life and, and wonderful and good for human beings. But this God, different than the gods of the ancient Near East, and when the text is played, is that this God is a God who not just cares about life, but God has a moral standard, and he is concerned about the choices that humans make. Because he, as God, reigns as king forever over creation. The scriptures bear that out. And, and, and to know that God shows his rule over creation in the very formation of the nation of Israel when he takes a group of slaves who are in the most powerful nation at the time, uh, Egypt, who is, uh, has great military might in the south. And, and he says, hey, listen, I'm going to take one man and set in a na uh, free an entire nation of slaves, and I'm going to break the power of this military nation and create my own nation out of these slaves. God is the one who rules as king forever. And so the scriptures sum it up like this and says, salvation is of the Lord. 
And it is for this reason that the prophet, prophet, prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, some years later after Isaiah wrote in his own experiences with God, he says, and when he sums it up, he says, listen, the man who trusts in God, that is the blessed person. The one who does not trust in God, that one is cursed. That man is cursed because ultimately when hard times come in life, the man whose trust rests in God will be able to stand while the other will fail. Now, what does all this ancient history have to do with us? Well, this week we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth into the world. And his birth ties us back to these ancient events. Let me show you that in text. Matthew chapter 1, if you have your Bible, turn there. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And thankfully, you just got a chance to see this played out in a visual form before you in the sermon. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they, will call, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Did you see it in the text? Matthew picks up on this ancient prophecy of Isaiah that was given to the house of David. Because the sign that God has spoken about has appeared in human history. And it has appeared in the Christmas story. God is now keeping his promise of that son that he spoke about in Isaiah 9. Because the line of kings had been broken after the Babylonian exile. And God has now come to restore the kingship of David in this new descendant of David who would rule and be faithful and bear the name of God as no other king did. And because of his faithfulness, he would establish the line and throne of David forever. And so what, what was a sign, if you will, to the house of David has now become a sign to the entire world that God has come to be with us. And so we, like Ahaz, are put in a similar situation facing a similar decision that Ahaz was, had to make. And I would encourage us not to follow in Ahaz's direction. What is that same decision that we're forced to make? Will we trust in God's salvation or will we trust in human ability to save us by our own contrivances? Will we try to trust in the God who is king over the universe or will we look for our own Assyria to save us from whatever it is pressing in on us, believing that our human efforts can save us in a way that God cannot. Well, the virgin birth that is shared by both Matthew and Luke in their Gospels reminds us about the identity of this person who was found in this animal feeding trough with these tiny little fingers and 
tiny little toes so that we're not deceived that this is just like every other baby that has been born. But this baby who's in the manger is none other than the very God of Israel who had created all things and formed the nation and rescued them from slavery and been faithful to the line of David and kept the nation and directed the affairs of human history is now in the manger. That's who's in the manger. This God, and he has come to be with us by becoming one of us and yet at the same time remaining God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so by him being Jesus, he fills up the full meaning of what the name Emmanuel means, God with us, to the fullest sense of all that that name means. One of his other disciples, after living with Jesus and getting to know Jesus and watching his life unfold, reflected on his life. And this is what he said about the identity of Jesus. John chapter 1, he said this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says that the baby that's in the manger is none other than God himself. He is truly Emmanuel, the true Emmanuel, God who has come to be with us. And why has God come to be with us? Is it the same reason that he says it in the original text? God gives that name to Ahaz as a sign to the house of David because he had come to save and to deliver. God had come near. God had come close because he had come to help. Now, if you're in the text and you notice that, you might have noticed that I read something in the text that if your minds are putting the words together, you might have had a small objection or at least some curiosity because when I read to you from the Net Bible, you would have noticed that the words were translated differently. If you notice in the text when I read from the Net Bible, the way that they translated was not virgin, as is in the ESV, but young woman. And you might say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Vir Matthew said virgin, you read young woman, what's going on there? Something's not right here. Uh, why is that different? I know the ESV has that, but why is the Net Bible translating that differently? Well, it has to do because this is a, a highly debated term with the meaning of the word, the term that's used in the original text. So in the original text, the word actually points towards a young woman of marriageable age. A young woman of marriageable age. Kind of like the old English idea of a young maiden. And this is kind of the concept of what it's pointing to, and that's why they translate it that way. But what's interesting is that that word has within it a range of meaning, and that range of meaning covers the idea of virginity. And so it, has, it can accommodate that idea as well. Although it's mainly focused over here, it accommodates this idea as well. It's implicit in the meaning of the text. Why? Because when we consider the culture of the day, when we consider how girls were raised and how they were kept by their fathers, in, the, in those days, at least in their culture of the day, any young woman of marriageable age would have been a virgin. That didn't need to be said. That was just how culture worked during the day. That idea was already present in the language because that's how the things went because fathers kept their daughters from being exposed to any impurity. That was the kind of, of idea. Now, why Matthew translates it that way is also because something that happens in the translation and change of, of language over meaning over time. 
So when they, when they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, which became known as the Septuagint, that is the Old Testament, when they translated, the word that they chose was a word that was close to that meaning at the time, which had a young woman of marriageable age. So they chose that word and translated it that way. But over time, the meaning of that word changed to have more of the focus on that one aspect. And so during Matthew's day, when the language comes along, it's mainly focused on the idea of being a virgin. And that's why he translated that way. But he sees in the text what God had intended as he watches history unfold and he sees what God has done. He says, look, God had already promised it. It was already there in the text. And now it has become explicit in the life and the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, born of a virgin, has happened because that's what God said would happen. Now, what is it if God has come near, and just like with Ahaz, God had come close because he had come to save him from his enemies. Now, in this same situation, Emmanuel, God is with us. He has come close again because it's a time of deliverance. What has he come to save us from? Well, we know that it's not a political enemy. That's at least what the first century teaches us because that's what they were expecting. The Emmanuel, God is with us. He has come close. The Messiah is here. If he's here, then that must mean political deliverance. God is going to save us from our political enemies. But things didn't go that way. Uh, he had a different idea of salvation in mind. Well, it was announced at his birth to Joseph by the angel. Notice what the angel said back in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God has come to be with us to save us from sin. He has come to save us from our violation of the will of God as it has been revealed through Moses, through the prophets, through the writings, and through the teaching ministry of Jesus himself. He has come to save us from all the times that we have failed to love God and love those who are made in his image in the way that God intended for us to treat him and to treat other people. He has come to save us from continuing to pursue those selfish desires that often we give into that lead us into getting what we want at the expense of other people. He has come to save us from the way that we deceive ourselves in pursuing what we believe to be good and that ultimately we try to get there but we do bad things and we justify those bad things in the name of the good thing that we want to do. And so we become like Pharaoh in some senses who says, I want economic growth for my nation and I'm willing to build it on the back of slaves to do that. He says, no, I'm coming and you think you're doing good but no, I've come to save you so that you might see that what you're doing is wrong. He has come to save us from all the times that we have broken promises, that we have betrayed trust in relationships, that we have not lived up to our word, either in deed, by thought, or by very action of our lives. He has come to save us, as the Bible points out, and the imagery that it uses is one of crookedness, that we should live a straight life, but we're always bending here and bending there, and God has come to put us back and make our lives straight again. That's what he's come to save us from. How has he come to do this? By opening up a new way for us to be human. And how did he do that? By giving his life for us, by dying for our sins on the cross, and by being raised from the dead so that he could dispense to us the promised gift that the Father had promised, which was his very presence the very Holy Spirit, to come and live within us. One of the images that the Bible uses for sin is that sin has made us sick. 
And one thing that life teaches us about sickness is that when we are desperately sick, we need someone else to come along and help us to overcome that illness. And Jesus says this very thing when he, when he, later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, when he encounters the Pharisees. Let me read that text to you. This is what it says. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The reason that God has come close in Emmanuel, the reason he's shown up again in history in a way unlike if any time he had done before, the reason he has come to be with us by becoming one of us is to save us, to deliver us from the greatest enemy we have, sin, which causes us to have a broken relationship with God. And so today, the question that stands before you is the same question that stood before Ahaz. Will you allow God to save you, or will you seek to save yourself by your own devices? If you're not a follower of Jesus, will you allow him to save you from the penalty of sin? The Bible lays it out clearly and says that is death. It is ultimate separation from the presence of God forever. Will you allow him to save you from that? Will you trust in the Savior, God, who has come near to deliver you? Will you let him be your Savior this Christmas and not look to your own means and your own ability to save you? Will you not trust in yourself? And if you're a believer and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, will you trust in God to save you from the power of sin in your life? Those still old patterns, those old desires that are still lingering within you, will you trust that God will change you by you relying on the Holy Spirit and not on your own will and effort to see the transformation in your life that needs to happen? Will you trust Emmanuel, God who has come to be close to you and save you? Will you let him make the change in you instead of trusting? yourself to do it. That's what Christmas is all about, that God has come close and come near to be with us so that he might help us, that he might deliver us, and that he might save us. And the question that the text is asking of you is, will you trust in God's deliverance or will you trust in yourself? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray, Father, that ultimately uh, we would like be like the psalmist, like the righteous, Lord, who puts our firm trust and confidence in you, that we won't follow uh, in the footsteps of King Ahaz, who saw two options before him. And he decided that uh, human ability was more to be trusted than divine deliverance. Father, I pray that we won't do that. I pray, Lord, that we will follow in the footsteps of the apostles, Lord, who trusted Jesus above all things. And, Lord, so that we may be like the blessed man, like the green tree that sticks out its roots and finds water, and that we bear fruit in season. That, Lord, when the drought comes of life, when the hard circumstances come, we will stand firm, not because of ourselves, but because we trust in a God who is able to make us stand firm. As was said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, that our faith in you, because we trust in the one who is able to keep us, we will be kept by your power and by your deliverance. We thank you that you came to be near. Thank you for being Emmanuel for us, Lord Jesus Christ, God with us, so that we might be saved from our great enemy, sin. We thank you in Jesus' holy name.
Amen. Would you please stand with us as we sing our final song and then we'll dismiss you in just a moment.